Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn. And before we get to an awesome podcast with Eli Syriac of Cushman Wakefield, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Cruise Consulting, who helps bring us this podcast. And Cruise has a really cool new offering, cruisetax.com. Go to that URL, and if you just need a tax return, if you're a startup and just need your taxes done, we will do it. We have a really slick interface to ask you all the questions we need to know. And then we also have a nice little thing that helps you upload all the documents. Once we get that, we'll get you a quote and get a tax return done in five days. It's that easy. So check out cruisetax.com when you get a chance. And now on to Eli Sariak of Cushman Wakefield. Thanks. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And my very special guest today is Eli Seriak of Cushman Wakefield. Welcome, Eli. Hey, Scott. Glad to be here. So this is quite an honor. It's my first, uh, second time doing a podcast with someone. So Eli is amazing at real estate. I'll talk a little bit more about that, but we want to have him on again to talk about going forward in 2018 and what the market looks like for startups in the 2018 real estate market. I am honored to be back for a second time. The first second time guest, amazing. Can't believe we've made it this far. So we have a bunch of things we're gonna talk about and the, the cool thing is Cruise Consulting used Eli to do another lease this year in I think it was September, right? Yeah, um, so we're sitting in our brand new space that Eli helped find us. He was amazing once again, so I can't recommend him enough. Please use Eli if you're gonna get some startup space. And we also learned a little bit, like I learned a little bit going through that process of things that hadn't come up on our first lease that we can kind of share with the audience and questions I asked Eli. So that should be really good. But I think first, let's talk about like what 2018 looks like going forward for you and the startup real estate market. So we are expecting another big year in in 2018. 2017 uh, saw some of the largest tech expansions that we've seen in San Francisco history. Uh, And I think that's particularly remarkable because we're now seven or eight years into this economic boom. And uh, those of us that have been doing this a little while are used to whipsaw markets where it's boom bust, it's three or four year cycles. And this has just been a a long sustained boom. Um, and then you look at the companies that have uh, expanded and done big leases this year. It's not all of them, but a lot of them are more established type players. There's Amazon, there's uh, there's Facebook that did a, a big lease for a brand new building uh, at 181 Fremont. And so it's not... It's almost 100% tech, but it's but a lot of it is the more established tech players, which, which it feels less risky and less fragile than yeah. it has previously. And so it, it, it feels like this boom is going to go on for the foreseeable future. Yeah. The crazy thing about that is, uh, like, Facebook is, what, 10 years old? Or maybe, no, maybe 12 years old, something like that. So it's not like they've been around forever. It's just, like, we, they're so ingrained in our life. And you had a, you have a really good list here. Maybe we can post... There's some new names on like companies that feel like they've been around forever to us, but maybe not to the rest of the community, like Slack or Okta or Atlassian. Those companies have all done huge, huge leases in the San Francisco market. And those companies are, I mean, Atlassian has been around forever because they came out of Australia and were kind of the slow ramp, but those Okta and, and Slack and Wish haven't been around that long. Like these are pretty new companies taking a lot of space. They are the and the and the growth has been been phenomenal. I think if you look at we have about thirteen companies on the on this list that did deals that were over hundred thousand square feet. I think I think by the end of the year the actual number is is going to be seventeen. A, a couple that we're missing on this list and a couple things that that may happen at the end of twenty seventeen. 
I feel like the the Slacks, Octas, Atlassians are probably looking at it from a risk perspective. They are some of the the newer, less proven companies. Um, but it's also I, I just I still think it's so remarkable that these these companies are uh, employing you know a thousand or yeah. thousands of thousands of people. I mean, one thing that that worries me maybe less so, more so than other cycles is it's not clear to me how all these companies are getting the talent that they they all want to be here in San Francisco. They all want the top tier talent. I worry is there enough top tier talent to to go around. I also worry about as the Bay Area becomes a more and more expensive place to live, do people decide that the quality of life here, um, just because of the mostly because of the expense, do they this has not happened in mass yet, but do they start looking at, at other markets and other parts of the country to to grow because of the cost of living and cost of doing business totally. here? I mean, for us, our answer to that was starting a San Jose office. And, you know, because you helped us with San Jose, too. It's like we could recruit a really high-quality person down in San Jose, and their, their, their cost of living would be a lot cheaper. And so that's worked for us so far. Um, but we're still in the early stages of that. We're still kind of working out the kinks on that. But that not everyone wants to commute to San Francisco or not everyone can afford to live in San Francisco. It's, it's kind of a sad fact. I wish our public government would build some more, get some more housing permits going and let's build some more skyscrapers and make it, um, make it a little more affordable, not just for our team members, but for Vanessa and I, like (laughs) we want to be able to buy a house pretty soon too. So it would make all of our lives a lot easier if we had cheaper housing in San Francisco. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think long-term that is the, I, I think the region's biggest challenge is just these are very complex problems with complex solutions, but the lack of uh, just the lack of housing and the need for more housing is just crystal clear. Yeah. And and we need the San Francisco and the entire region need to be doing whatever they can to add more housing because even with the housing boom a decade ago, there's just we have not as a region built anywhere near the housing that we need, and it's it's putting a, a strain on. Workers. I've lived here for 17 years now. I'm I'm now married with young children, and it is a. a we live in San Francisco, and it is a. You know, as the economy has done well, we've done well, but it, it is a challenge to make sure. things work in in San Francisco in the Bay Area. For sure. So, looking forward to 2018 for the big company. It sounds like those guys are confident. They're taking a lot of space. What about like kind of the late stage startup market? You know, companies because all those guys except for Slack and Wish have pretty much IPO, and those companies have raised huge late-stay rounds, so they're effectively IPO'd, you know, just privately. Um, what, do you, what do you see for the late-stage market in terms of taking space in San Francisco? So I think it, it really depends on the, on the size of those companies. If you, can, if you can find space that's already built, if you can find sublease space that maybe is already furnished and wired um, and, and, and well-designed, uh, I think there are tremendous cost savings, but... Um, it's it's been really hard to find those kinds of spaces and it going back a couple years ago it looked like we were going to maybe have an uptick in sublease space it it actually looked like we were going to have this uptick in sublease space that was potentially going to happen at the same time all these brand new buildings came online and what's happened is the brand new buildings have almost all been 100% leased wow. and then the sublease space did not really when sublease spaces hit the market it is it is gone really quickly and companies i'll use twitter as an example that look like they were maybe gonna go through a a rough patch and and potentially put a lot of space on the market twitter put a little bit of space on the market and it all got leased very very quickly and it's kind of and that sort of stabilized 
and it going back a couple years ago, it looked like that might be a wave of, okay, Twitter is going to cut back. And then maybe all these other companies are going to cut back as well. And we're going to have a glut of space on the market. And that just did not happen at all. And there are those types of opportunities are out there, but they're, they're hard to find. So I think probably the single best piece of advice I could give is to start planning early. You don't need to go out and rush into a transaction and do a, and do a land grab, but just start the planning part early, understand the different iterations of what your growth might look like, understand what's important to you from a location perspective, from a budget perspective, and also know that once you have that checklist of the things that are most important to you, that you're not going to get all those things and, and kind of think about, okay, are, are we willing to sacrifice a little bit on location? Are we willing to sacrifice a little bit? Are, are we willing to push our budget a little bit? If, if we, just as an example, if we're working on kind of a three-year growth plan or exit plan, are you willing to make an exception and take a space for five years or seven years if, yeah. it, is, if it checks all the other boxes? And you need to, you just need to have a good plan in place and give yourself plenty of time for and sure. that'll help have a better outcome. Yeah, that was a good, that's really good advice because that was something I didn't really, I think on our first phase working with you, we got really lucky and literally like I think the day we started working with you, you found something for us. It was like this amazing, so of course we thought that's how the real estate market works. Of course, you know, we extrapolate from that one moment. But in our in our new space at 333 Kearney, we actually, it took us probably like three months, right? Maybe four months looking before we really found the place we were going to move into and it was getting stressful like for we're we're a fast growing company and so we had we like didn't have a couch in our office anymore we did we had to get rid of like the lunch table and people were eating in the conference rooms which maybe sounds good or cool for a, a hyper growth startup but it's actually not cool it's it actually really affects the quality of life in the office and it's not i would not recommend that to anybody so if we could have planned better and maybe had our expectations set a little better we would have been able to avoid those downside situations where, I mean, I know it bummed out our team where they were, they had to sit there and eat lunch in the conference room. No one wants to do that. Uh, no one, you know, it's nice to have a chill area where you can go sit on the couch and take a phone call or something like that. So the, the whole plan ahead is, is really good advice on your point about sacrifices. That's a really good one too. Like, you know, this, but our, our prior office, like didn't have a kitchen. We didn't have, like we had basically to bring in water and things like that. In every other aspect, that office was awesome. And so we took it and we were glad we took it. But we had, you know, it would have been nice to have a kitchen, but that was just part of the deal. And so we didn't get everything we wanted, but it ended up working out and being fantastic for us. But just kind of know in your head, you're, you may not be able to get some of the creature comforts that you'd prefer. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I mentioned the sublease space is pretty supply constrained. And yeah. I think the other thing is that if you get out and plan early, the key decision makers on your team kind of understand what you want there's a reasonable chance that when you start the process, the space that you want is not going to be on the market. This And this is a very fluid, fast-moving market. But if you identify that through starting the process early, um, getting buy-in from all the internal decision makers, it'll make help you be able to move quickly when the right opportunity arises. Um, and obviously, in a perfect world, that opportunity would arise and you'd have two or three other backup yeah. options as well. But yeah. that's that's a lot easier done if, if you give yourself enough time. There's certain landlords or even sub-landlords where there's a good tenant-landlord match. And I, and I think you give by giving yourself more time, uh, you know, more often than not, it's going to be about it's the right space as opposed to the right building owner or owner of that space that, that you're making a deal with. But 
if you give yourself a little bit more time, then you have an opportunity to kind of flesh out those issues as well. And those can be everything for, you know, some, one example is security deposits. So there, there's some, some landlords are very old school and any tech company, they are going to want a massive security deposit yeah. from. And there's some that are going to be willing to take a little more risk by giving yourself more time as the tenant in that situation, you can better address those, those issues than if you're having to make a rushed decision for, sure. yeah. for our security deposit. I've, for our, you know, I'm in this unique position where I get to see the terms of a lot of the leases that our clients are, are signing. And a lot of our clients can get away with two months of security deposit. But I think in our, and those are, those are venture-backed companies. So those are companies that have like a big balance sheet that can show the, the, the landlord that they have, you know, five or $10 million in cash, things like that. For us, it was, it was unique in that we're, you know, family-owned business. And so I think our, our landlord in our new space wanted three, I think he ended up asking for three and a half months of security deposit, which we were actually fine doing because we knew, you know, we knew we had the money and could do it. And if that, you know, reduced his risk that he was feeling, that was, that was actually fine. But just be prepared if you're not like a venture back company or haven't raised a ton of funding yet, then be prepared to do more of a security deposit. If you can't show that balance sheet with a ton of cash on it, that's, that's another big learning right. I have from this. Well, and I, and I think we were on the, on the, on the first deal we did, I think with, with you guys, we were two months and, it, yeah. and that, I mean, that was a, you were subleasing, but that was a, a sub landlord who I felt understood your business really well yeah. and was really comfortable with it. And, and so it just, I mean, that's a, a good example of it just really varies landlord to landlord and sub landlord to sub landlord on what their expectations are. And I, I've had clients that have had one landlord that wanted a two month security deposit and another that wanted something closer to eight months wow, for the same months. company and just wow. huge spread on based on how they looked at the, the business and the, and the risk in the business. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it, it, it can be all over the place. That's interesting. The other tip that I feel like we learned in our process was it kind of relates back to the planning is don't if you're gonna need to sublet your space don't let it get down to the wire where the timeline is not attractive to sub lessees so like for example for us by because we didn't plan ahead far enough and it took us three or four months to find a place we then compressed our remaining lease at the previous place i think we only have like eight months left or something like that and it turns out that is a very difficult amount of time to actually sublease out because anyone who moves into that space only has kind of seven or eight months to actually use it before they can they need to move again. Now, our situation was a little complex in that Breather had already signed a lease at the end of our lease to take over that space. So they so there were I think probably in most cases the landlord would be willing to kind of extend the original terms and things like that. But in our case, there wasn't the ability to extend the term. So anyone who was going to sublease from us really only had eight months in that space. And that made it really hard to sublease. So we ended up getting lucky and worked some things out with Breather. That was awesome. But I could I could easily have seen us getting stuck with paying double rent for eight months, which would have told... And, you know, it was just like you live and you learn and you go through these things. But if we would have done a better job of planning, I think we could have avoided that and maybe subleased it out when it had 12 months, which made it a lot more. Is that generally like, is 12 months kind of the minimum you think? It, it is. And it, it's a, in this market, there are enough growing companies and scrappy startups that you can actually, a few years ago, if you had anything less than 12 months, you just wrote the whole thing off. There was basically no chance or an extremely minimal chance that you were going to find a, a tenant to take yeah. a, a space for less than a year. That's, that's changed. So you can actually find people and, and uh, recover some of those sunk 
uh, rent costs. But yeah, generally it's a year. Um, and it, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think you and I've talked about this some, but you look at a, like a, we work where a lot of people are in, are in month to month leases and, and the companies there are very, very comfortable with that. It's, it's interesting that, that, that it's challenging to, if you've got an eight month sublease, it's really hard to find somebody yet. Yet we work is opening locations all over the city where people are, are going month to month with no, you know, there, there, I think is some risk that, um, if other companies are growing, you might have to move. Oh, I didn't know. We work could actually ask you to leave. Is that I don't, I, I think I may be wrong about that. I know that the rules are very strict that, that I, I think you actually, I, now that I'm saying, I think the tenants actually do have some rights, but I think that the demand in we work is strong enough that if you go to them and tell them we're leaving, in a lot of cases, particularly in San Francisco, your space gets leased out from oh. under you, you, out yeah. from under. You don't have the ability to kind of say, "Hey, we're thinking about leaving, but we might want to leave in 30 days, or 60 days, or 90 days." The demand, yeah, I think, is so strong that as soon as you give notice, there's a waiting list of tenants that are going to take your yeah. your desk it, out. That's from under. definitely the case. We had it was a, another great. This is turning into like what we learned podcast, which is awesome. Um, when we went to San Jose. Our logic was let's do WeWork. They're very. The, the, I think the thing that people don't quite appreciate about them is they do all the IT infrastructure. They have all the desks. They have all the equipment. You don't really have to do anything. Whereas when we set up our other offices, like there is a crazy amount of IT that needs to happen. There's locks. There's alarms. There's just so many little things. And plus, you have to pay for all the desks and things like that and movers. So the infrastructure costs are actually pretty pretty high. Now, of course, when you're staying in a lease and you bought all this stuff, it's, it actually works out to your benefit. But WeWork is very convenient. You can really get in there quickly. So we did, I think we rented six desks to begin with, filled that up instantly. And then we were like, okay, let's get 10 or 12. And we called them. And this is a real life story. Like They're like, guess what? Two days before you called, someone came in and bought every available desk at our WeWork. There is, there is no capacity on any floor for anything. And so we were thinking like it had to be like an Amazon or Google or some, some big company that you know had those kind of resources. But literally the San Jose WeWork got completely sold out two days before we requested more space. And there's just, there's no leeway. Like we were, we were stuck in our space. We've since been able to move up to a 10 person office, which has been very lucky. Um, but we're, we're at the mercy of, you know, WeWork is just such a powerful brand. They make it so easy. It really is like a great value prop for the renter. And so that's reflected in there's just being no extra space in San Jose. Yeah. And they've, they've figured out a real valuable niche in the marketplace yeah. and they've, they've, I think they've opened five or six new locations in San Francisco over the past year. Wow. They are, they are getting really close. I don't think they're quite there yet, but they are really close to having a, a, a million square feet leased in San Francisco in let's say ten or twelve different locations. I mean, it's just just a remarkable amount of square footage, and it's and it's happening because of the demand. They open their locations and they fill up really really quickly. Um, they are switching to more of a a lot of their tenants. It's more of an enterprise model where it's. I, I think it started as small scrappy entrepreneurs one or two person companies and now it's a third of their businesses with big companies taking down an entire floor or an entire location and i think that speaks to what a what a good value prop they it have really they're clearly that. you know yeah. they're they're clearly uh figuring something out that that works well for the for the tenants for yeah. the buyers but of real estate i would highly recommend that that technique of just if you're going to go into a new market use we work at first figure it out because our we now know that work that san jose works for us so we're going to build San Jose out more, but 
we didn't we didn't know that time. So having a month a month was actually really attractive to us. Yeah. Anything you see for 2018 going forward, like for the small startups, maybe the five to 15 person startups, basically who we were last year. Have you any piece of advice or anything? I do think the same the same planning piece holds true. I mean, even if you, uh, it seems like it's a small commitment and you know, something that maybe doesn't seem like that, you know, if it's, if it's a, you're a two person or five person team, it might seem like, uh, maybe it's not that different than renting an apartment. I would still think real carefully about what it is that's important to you, uh, and, and have a good plan in place. It's really hard to find those uh, small spaces. I mean, it's anything below 5,000 square feet, there's so many big tenants out there that a lot of buildings are getting if if a landlord can put together a full floor or a full building for a big tenant they're doing that and a lot of the smaller space on the market is going away and then there's enough demand that all the small spaces are are staying full so just yeah. just know that it's going to be a probably a challenging process um you know find somebody that knows the market well to help you navigate that if you're a growing 10 person company I would do whatever you can to avoid signing a five-year lease because oh, you're going to yeah. yeah. grow out of the space in six to 12 months or not need the space. And that, and, and so try and avoid that. And definitely if you can find something that whether it's a WeWork type solution or whether it's something that's a sublease that has furniture and, and, uh, things in place that can min- minimize your startup yeah. costs, definitely, um, do that. Well, one of the things on the furniture does is a lot of CapEx for a small company, but I actually found I was surprised that the the moving expenses are not that expensive. Like once you have the furniture, it's not too bad. I think it costs us five or six thousand dollars in moving expenses. Now there's a lot of like paint jobs and repairs and things like and IT costs, but um, but yeah, it's that initial like basically one of our workstations probably costs I think a thousand dollars or eleven hundred dollars. That's not including the computer. That's like monitors, desk, chair. It's probably more. It's probably more like fourteen hundred dollars now. That I think about it. Because we have like double monitors and things like that, but so every one of those, every time you add someone, is a material cost. So just think about that as you're hiring people or doing your projections on on your hiring. We have we have actually an entire spreadsheet. I think it costs us something like five thousand dollars to hire a new employee. We with all the software we use and everything like that. So just think about it. I highly recommend. That's a really good exercise to go through. Um, and then if you're a ten person company going to fifteen. You know that's twenty five thousand dollars in capex. Your base and capex plus software. You're gonna have to pay next year in addition to more rent and things like that. So it's it's a good little metric. You had while well, we had the mics turned off. This always happens. People make the best points. Underbuying versus overbuying. What? Give me give me that soundbite you were telling me. Like it's 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 you're really smart to think this way. One of the challenges any growing tech company is going to deal with is don't want to be in the business of going out and getting a new office every year. It's good, good, good for your real estate broker, but not really good for, (laughs) not, not really good for anybody else. When there are, if you're a rapidly growing tech company, that's a really vexing problem to address because you, you know, if you hit your numbers or exceed your numbers and you're, and you're, and you're growing rapidly, you very well may end up in a situation where you just, you, you do need to go out and find new space on a somewhat regular basis. So uh, so I think it's having whoever the key stakeholders are on your internal team kind of think really think about that what's what's more important is it the kind of keeping costs low and maybe having to move if you hit your growth numbers versus just not wanting to deal with the with the pain of moving and maybe overbuying on real estate a yeah. little bit. Um, historically overbuying has been a much 
much, much bigger problem than underbuying. But I see it a little more balanced now where, yeah. where you can um, just enough businesses are doing well enough that underbuying has, has become a problem on how yeah. much space you take. Yeah, I mean, if you use us for example, like we were joking that we may end up having to move again in September. It, it actually makes me almost, gives me a stomach ache to think about that because it's incredibly disruptive and it takes so much time and energy. But if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do. But we, we have consciously made the decision to underbuy and project out basically like a year and say like if things go so well that we have to move out of our space in a year, that's a great problem to have and we're willing to shoulder that cost. But yeah, I think I've always told companies to, to underbuy too because there's a lot to be said for the energy and having people packed in a room and it gives you a sense of like we're in it together and this is a startup and things like that. But like I said, I also felt the downsides of that when we didn't have a lunch table, didn't have couches to sit on, things like that. Like it was kind of embarrassing and I know people didn't like it. So I'm maybe I'm more towards the maybe by 18 months you know, or something like that. Maybe loosen, loosen up a little bit. Yeah. And I, in two years, I think a good way to look at it is I think when you're a smaller, scrappier growing company, you should be underbuying. Yeah. As you get to, as you get to a a certain size, then it's okay to overbuy. I mean, I'll, I'll go back and use Twitter as an example. Twitter has a million square feet in, in mid market and they've, uh, they've subleased maybe a hundred or 200,000 square feet, square feet of it. It's inconvenient for Twitter to have to go out and sublease some space that they're not using. Um, and this, this all happened uh, over a year ago. Yeah. But at, at that size, I mean, Twitter, Twitter is a publicly traded company. They've had some ups and downs, but it's not having a little bit of extra real estate that they took down for growth reasons in a building that is, that is their urban campus. I mean, they're really almost the, the, the flagship tenant in, in mid-market and civic center. It's really, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. You're not going to go, at that size, you're not going to go out of business because you took a little bit too much yeah. real estate. When you're younger and growing, I think it is a lot, it is a lot riskier. Yeah. It's, probably, you know, it's probably not going to put you out of business, but it could, it could cause real problems for you if you get out over your skis on for how sure. much space you're taking. For sure. Yeah, like if Twitter would have underbought and did gone from 400 that needed to go from 400,000 to 800,000 or whatever, that would have been really disruptive for their business. So they did the right thing. And exactly. like, like you said, there's plenty of people around who can sop up that extra inventory as well. Right. So yeah, so I, I normally am very conservative, but I think one of the lessons I've learned is maybe we should have shot for like 18 months worth of space or things like that. I mean, you and I, we had this talk and we talked, Vanessa, we all weighed in and the idea was to be conservative and Again, if it's if you're outgrowing your space in a year, that's an awesome problem to have, and we can all deal with that. But maybe maybe a little bit more wiggle room would have been good for us. But it is it is what it is. Very hard to find space that fits in San Francisco as well. There was a, a a term in our lease that confused me a lot, and I had to call you a couple of times on this. And it was something to the effect of um, the the tenant us would pay kind of our share of operational costs. Uh, on an annual basis, which I was super confused about. And we talked about, can you maybe explain that to people? And it was a new term for me. So I think it could be very helpful for the people who are listening. Yeah, absolutely. So most leases and there's, and there's different types of leases that, uh, in, in terms of whether the landlord or the tenant is responsible for the operating expenses in a building, most office leases are either full service leases 
where the landlord pays the expenses but passes the increases on to the tenant, or sometimes they're what we call industrial gross, where the tenant is paying their own PG&E bill and the tenant is taking care of the janitorial, but the building owner is paying the other operating expenses but, but then passes on the increases. So uh, any building is going to have the, the operating expenses for the building are things like real estate taxes, ongoing maintenance, insurance, property management, uh, th- those are maybe security. If you have on-site security, those those are typically uh, some of the big ones. And in in most leases, those in the initial year of the lease are paid for by the landlord. As those things get more expensive, uh, if you move in in 2017 and then in 2018, all those costs go up by about three percent. The landlord in most leases can pass those costs on to the tenant. Yeah. So it's important to understand what they are. I, I think th- the biggest risks are. If there's a building sale and there's a major real estate property tax reassessment and that gets passed on, that can be really significant. If there's a... Um, That's a great point, by the way. I've had one of our clients call us because it, it seemed very fishy to me, but like this company, their landlord was selling, kind of selling the company, selling the real estate to a new LLC every year to mark up the value and was hitting them with increased property taxes every year. Yes, yeah, that it, seems... I, it's, do you remember me texting you about that? Like it happened like a year ago, and I was like, "That seems crazy," but it turns out it's legal. They could do it, but that's the kind. Of, and it was making their it was making their lease like go up in material amount of costs. So that's something I never encountered before. That's a really good point. And then what are the other kind of? So so real estate taxes is a big one. If if there's if there are planned capital expenditures, and those are and that could be replacing an elevator, that could be replacing a roof, that could be a other significant uh, building upgrades. Those can typically be passed on. A lot of times there's an amortization schedule that's that's outlined in the lease. There should be. So it, so it, it gets amortized over 10 years. Um, but there's some debate about what, or not debate, there's just some ambi- uh, ambiguity about what, what is a capital ex- expenditure. If, yeah. if, a, if a landlord's doing a big lobby upgrade that, that um, I mean, obviously the tenant's benefit from that to a degree but uh, but they don't if a landlord's doing a million dollar upgrade of their lobby and you're in half the building you don't want to end up with half that yeah. cost passed on to you so you got to make sure those things are, are clearly spelled out um we saw some issues with pg&e uh this is going back to the kind of enron the brownout where where there were those huge PG, pg&e that. spikes yeah. but that was about 15 years ago that's been less of an issue in the last 10 years. So th- those are kind of the things to yeah. look out for on, on the They're operating. They're usually floor. done pro rata, right? Like we have seven floors in our building. So we're responsible for one seventh of exactly. these costs. But it, it was, it's, it's an important thing. Cause I, it freaked me out when I saw that. I was like, well, what happens if they decide to replace an elevator or something like that? We could be on the hook for a lot of yeah. money. So, and also much more, if, if you're doing a two or three year lease, it's, it's important. If you're doing a seven year lease, Five-year lease, seven-year, ten-year lease. It's really, really important to understand what those costs are because yeah. it, it by by the time you're in year five or six or seven, they, they can they can be pretty significant. That's a really good point. I had another one. Oh, you you kind of covered this a little bit, but it was like startups are trying to minimize the costs coming like out of the gate, basically. And you had two good points. So subleasing and yeah. and WeWork are, are I, I think look at those sorts of options. And also just, we, we talked a little bit about, I, I, I can't remember if this was for the mics were on or not, but if you have a three-year business plan or your investors have a two- or three-year business plan or you're, or there's an IPO on the horizon or, or some sort of 
some sort of exit, try and build your real estate strategy around that business plan. And and if it's a two-year business plan, don't sign a seven-year lease. Yeah. Um, if it's a more stable long-term business plan, then you can look at a longer-term lease. But th- those are those are things to pay yeah, close I mean, attention. Those are really good points. Any closing thoughts here? Like what what what's your you you, you predict basically a strong 2018, right? Strong 2018. Um, it's uh, I think this. I think anybody in California should have mixed feelings about this tax cut, oh, but but yeah. I think it will throw a little kind of sugar on the on the boom, and I don't I don't think the uh, the expansion that we're seeing is going to end anytime soon. I am I can't stress enough how concerned I am about just like livability, housing crisis, yeah. homeless crisis. Uh, I read a journalist named Tom Braithwaite wrote an article recently in the Financial Times and just in talking about how how San Francisco is doing all these just the technology here is just amazing all the things that are happening yeah. here and you you look around the world and just how many how much of the innovation is happening in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley but shortage of housing and just the I mean the homeless crisis is is um it's it's just seems like it's every block in San Francisco and he described it as more like Blade Runner and less like the Jetsons, which I just thought was the perfect way to 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 put it. It's like it's like the, twenty years ago, the vision would have been flying cars and automated cars and this just cool tech oriented future, which I which I think we're heading in the right direction with a lot of that. But you look at just the some of the kind of gritty life on the streets in San Francisco, and it has that Blade Runner like yeah. like feel to it. And I thought that was a really insightful thing it's, for him to point out. It's definitely that for the, there's a huge homeless problem and a lot of drugs on the street. You see, you can walk. It's very easy to walk a couple blocks and see someone shooting up on the street. It's it's a terror. I mean, it's 2017 or almost 2018. It's crazy to even say that. And then for middle class folks like us, like more housing would be a gift from God. Like we just need more housing. So yeah. hopefully the politicians get their act together and, and can do more of that. We'll be. We'll probably redo this podcast uh, next December after we have to move again, and uh, I learn a bunch of other things during our release. But thank you for all your help, Eli. You've been an awesome partner for Cruise Consulting, and again, highly recommend other startups out there reach out to you. You're awesome at what you do, and it's been a pleasure working with you. I would love to do that. I'm happy to be back, and wish you a prosperous 2018. Awesome. Thanks, man. Appreciate Thanks. it. Take care.